The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and today we begin the fourth chapter, which marks the second division of this epistle to the Thessalonian church. Often, Paul began his letters with a doctrinal section where he carefully advances the proofs of the doctrine that he wants to teach. He states the doctrine, and he establishes it. He establishes a foundation for the doctrine, and then he proceeds going through... uh, practical applications of that doctrine. But we notice in 1 Thessalonians that Paul approached this letter in a little different way. This is more personal in its beginning. He thanks the Lord for the principles of the Christian faith that have begun to build in this Thessalonian church and has anchored them to the gospel. And then he speaks of his own ministry in founding the church And he relates the sincerity and the honesty of his efforts. And then finally, he commiserates with their suffering amidst amidst terrible persecution. And he noted how the Thessalonians suffered the same afflictions by their countrymen as the believers in the Judean churches. And the gist of these first three chapters is all of that information, which concludes with a, a prayer for these people that their faith would increase that their love would abound, and their hope of Christ's return would be encouraged. Now, if you look again at the 11th verse in chapter 3, the first section ended with this plea. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul prayed that they would be established in holiness. And as we move into chapter 4, Paul will expand on the practical application of this prayer. What does God expect from these people? And how will they live in the holiness and the purity that God requires? There are many people who think of Christianity as uh, their ticket to escape from hell. That their salvation is a very personal thing. It's their personal salvation, and they approach it that way, and they believe that God saves them from hell, and then the rest of their life is theirs to do as they please. I think that's a gross misunderstanding of salvation in Christ. I think mostly it's not salvation at all. Salvation is intended for a higher purpose than what it does for us personally. Our salvation is for the glory of God. And our lives are to be sent, spent testifying of the amazing grace that God has given us in saving us from our sins. We will glorify God only as we conform to the standard of holiness that is established through the commandments. We glorify God by obedience that reflects the righteous character of Jesus Christ who always obeyed His heavenly Father. Now, you remember in the first section of this letter that that Paul said that he wanted to return to Thessalonica to perfect those things that were lacking in their faith. And as it turns out, personal holiness 
That is the main issue with these people, personal holiness. That's the great deficiency in their faith. And it had to do with their separation from the perverse, wicked culture in which they lived. Now, we're going to talk about that today. And this message uh, is mostly an introduction to the culture of the times and the former lifestyles of these Christians and how that culture was constantly trying to pull them back in and to ruin their influence for Christ. I'll warn you that today's subject is unpleasant. Some of it may seem harsh to you. And I want to, I want to warn you before we continue that some of what I will say today may strain what you would like your young people to hear. And this is a consequence of our decision to have a more family-oriented assembly. But I promise that I'll be careful. I promise that I won't be purient in this discussion as some preachers would be. Because unfortunately, there are some in our country today, some pastors who stand in pulpits and preach things that are risque because they know that captures the attention of those that are saturated in this deviant culture in which we live. And to me, that seems to be an upside-down, counterproductive approach to the very things that Paul warns against in this text. Now, let's read the beginning of this second section and see how uh, Paul unfolds God's plan for personal purity. Verse number one, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. You might underline that part. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now here by fornication he means all types of, of offensive sexual activity. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence. That means sexual desire. Not in the lust of concupiscence. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness. But unto holiness, he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. If we lived in the time just prior to World War II, I'm not sure that this text would resonate as much as it does today. I'm not sure that we would take the same color of meaning from this text uh, then as it is now in 2018, and that's because the morality of our country has changed from pre-World War II. Today our culture looks much more like a Thessalonian problem. 75 to 100 years ago, that would put us back into the era of revival preachers, some of the late revival preachers like J. Frank Norris and Billy Sunday, and at that time, they were preaching against the immorality of what you would call demon alcohol. That was the, the terrible scourge of the era. And alcohol is certainly a problem today. But you don't hear many preachers preaching against that anymore. Not much is said about it. 
alcohol has been accepted. And in many churches, if, if you're a social drinker, uh, nobody cares about that. They say it's okay. And today they just lump it all under this thing that is called Christian liberty. And so if you choose that you're going to drink, then the church is not going to say very much about it. And that's just an example of how the church has blended socially with the culture and has accepted the culture's values as its own. Now, in the first century, drunkenness and gluttony, that is referring to excessive indulgence, was socially acceptable. And we can relate to those times in our culture today because indulgence, uh, living to excess, is also a part of this culture. Not much is said either about the indulgence of our, of our people with alcohol and now legalized mind-altering drugs. Now, in this text, we have an even more up-to-date problem than those things. It's a problem that's quickly taking over our culture to make us even more like the first century culture. We've accepted alcohol when churches were once very strongly against it. And so churches have also begun to uh, accept this rapidly growing insidious problem that's destroying America from within. And this is the problem of sexual immorality. And you needn't ask me for a list of examples or statistics uh, as proof of it all because you know it. It's everywhere. You live it every day. From the time that you get up in the morning to the time that you go to bed at night, from Monday to Sunday, you are immersed in this culture of immorality. And in every possible way and every means that can be used, sexual impurity is promoted. It's encouraged, it's celebrated, it's paraded. Everybody is taught to do what's free, to be free and do what they want with anybody they want at any time they want. You see it on entertainment television, even commercials on TV promote deviant lifestyles. On Sunday night, just a, a few weeks ago, I turned on the television and five minutes into a program, and I'm talking about a drama presentation, five minutes into this program, they were blasting discrimination against transgenders. There's hardly a program on television anymore that doesn't promote gay lifestyles as normal, acceptable behavior. And so in search of sexual gratification, people purposely seek deeper and darker ways to express their depravity. I read an article just a few weeks ago about the content moderators for Facebook. These are people that are responsible for viewing videos and, and uh, pictures that people want to upload to their Facebook pages. And around the world, 24 hours a day, there are these moderators that are constantly watching for depraved content. And they say that there's this ongoing, persistent submission of child sexual abuse. There is bestiality, there are beheadings, there's torture, there's rape, and there's murder. There's violence and pictures of all this stuff that have to be caught by these moderators so they don't stay up on Facebook pages. And this article said that Facebook employs psychiatrists and psychologists to help deal with the trauma that these moderators experience on a daily basis by viewing all of this content. And it's also said that they recommend that each of these monitors, monitors work only three and a half hours a day 
or at least takes significant breaks because it's so bad that it wears on the psyche and these moderators experience a form of traumatic stress syndrome. And you can imagine what it is that they must see because when you look at what's on the internet today, what you can see and what's on Facebook, you wonder what in the world could be so bad because there's so much that already gets through. There's so much wickedness that you see. But more and more seeps through and more and more is acceptable and more and more has become the new norm of personal expression. No one considers that to be mental perversion. And that's especially true of sexual perversion that's increasingly darker and increasingly acceptable. Deviance is celebrated as a virtue. And you know that because you've driven through San Francisco and you've watched that cesspool of celebratory parades. There's one author who wrote, We are in the throes of a sexual revolution reflecting a tsunami-like wave of the neo-pagan world and life view of secular humanism with its insatiable sacramental pursuit of natural and unnatural sexual gratification. This revolution requires the normalization of sexual promiscuity and perversity. As one cultural analyst has said, a cultural revolution is designed to celebrate what was once despicable and make despicable what was once celebrated. Like all revolutions, those who do not surrender will be marginalized or eliminated. We are in such a revolution marked by sexual anarchy. Aren't you proud that your newly elected governor can bring a moral climate to Sacramento like he brought to San Francisco? And you wonder, who are these millions of people who vote for this worst decadence since first century Rome? Who are they? And sadly, we would have to say that many of them are Christians who vote the party. I looked at my ballot in November, and I thought, what's the use? What's the use? My choices are deviance and more deviance. The culture is swirling us into a sewer drain. And many Christians are none too convicted that what they should do is just dive in with all the deviance. And as I said, there are new perversions that are pursued. There are bigger thrills to experience. And once the deviants take their plunge into the pornographic culture, then all they do is find more and more titillating ways to satiate their sexual appetites. Now, you might want to cover young ears, but I'm sure that your students that are in public schools know more about this than you. The latest is artificial intelligence, and I suppose there's some application of good that can come from that, but the most money to be made on that is to turn full-life images into sexual encounters. Virtual reality is, is moving in that direction. You know, you, you, I went to the store yesterday and I saw a young man just about this tall standing in front of the displays with the goggles on his face attached to his smartphone. And yes, we know those things can be used for education and for clean entertainment, but where do you think the most money from those things is to be made? The pornographic industry is on that like white on rice. They know there's billions of dollars to be made from perverting our young people through pornographic images. It's a fantasy world of debauchery. It's a make-believe world of perversion that is so real to the mind that it's be like being there physically. And it doesn't really matter whether you are physically there. If the mind can be fooled into thinking that it's real, that's all that counts. And the perception is what matters. 
Well, how, how do they go down deeper and how can they satisfy the worst sensual garbage the mind can conceive? And that's the very thing that they're after. How can we do it? How can we make it worse? And you can be sure that it's going to be as, as normal as just going out and renting a movie. And it's all within the boundaries of the license to sin. And so this turn towards decadence, we wonder, where does this happen? How did it happen in this country that many of us believe or have said is a Christian country? A place where people have believed in God. How do things like this happen? Well, it happened about 50 years ago in the beginning of the sexual revolution. Now, those of you that are older Californians, you remember how it began. You know that San Francisco was in the heart of it. But perhaps more than San Fran, as Jimmy Garoppolo, the porn-dating quarterback, porn-star-dating quarterback, called it, uh, the ball really got rolling, pun intended, the ball really got rolling in L.A. And it was from two rotten apples, Hollywood and Hefner. They helped to push sex into the cultural mainstream. Now, we're no longer in pre-World War II. Hollywood, with its movies, could let you see it. Hefner could give you more than you could imagine. And all of that began the steady breakdown of marriage and family. They put sex up on the big screen. They took sex and they put it on the magazine rack in your local drugstore. And I suppose that all of that would be bad enough if they were to keep that between moral couples. But that's not perverted enough. That's not bad enough. And so they had to make it natural and normal for anyone just to hop into bed when they want. And I don't think I need to take that any further. And as I mentioned Hollywood, along with that is, is Hefner. And he's the playboy that recently died. And instead of the world saying goodbye and good riddance and let hell have him, the media celebrated his life. And the media said that he's a hero. And they called him an innovator. They said he was a liberator. He liberated sexually oppressed people and broke down all of the sexual barriers, folks, that made us a decent moral society. Well, how did Hefner do that? Well, his philosophy was that sex is just biological. It's only a biological function. He destroyed the emotional attachment and the sanctity of it to the marriage relationship. And he said, no, this is just a biological function like eating. You've got to have it. It's just biology. Sex should be as free and easy as having a bologna sandwich. And do you wonder where he got that idea? Is it true that Hugh Hefner was an innovator? No, he wasn't an innovator. All that he did was resurrect the ancient dead corpse of Greek and Roman morality. And it was the philosophy of Plato and Socrates and others. I've not read Plato extensively, but I know some who have, and they say that along with his intellectual philosophies, Plato wrote many things that you would blush to read. The idea that sex is a biological function is exactly the thing that Paul experienced in Corinth. Do you remember that Paul wrote this scripture? 1 Corinthians six thirteen. He wrote, Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now there you see the word that Paul used for sexual immorality is fornication. That comes from the word pornea, same word that we get pornography. One meaning of it is prostitution, and it's just one 
of the many expressive Greek words that cover all sorts of sexual perversion. And the Greeks had seven of these words. All of them are used to describe deviant practices, only they didn't think they were deviant. They thought they were natural. It was normal and accepted. But it took seven words for them to describe all of their uh, distinct perversions. So Paul wrote, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, and that is exactly the same thing that we are discussing today. Deviant sexual practices were commonplace, and their philosophers said, no, it's just like eating. You've got to have food for your stomach, and you must have sex for your body. It's all biological, so sex should be as common as a meal. And this is the Thessalonian problem. The thing lacking in their faith is how were they going to climb out of that culture in which they lived for so long? And it's worse than what we see today, although we're fast headed there. This is what William Barclay wrote. The Thessalonians had only newly come into the Christian faith, and they had come from a society in which chastity was an unknown virtue. They were still in the midst of such a society, and the infection of it was playing upon them all the time. It would be exceedingly difficult for them to unlearn what they had all their lives accepted as natural. Doesn't that sound modern? Doesn't that sound as modern as artificial intelligence? Chastity was an unknown virtue. Have you tried talking to a student who's come up through the public school system and one that's gone to secular universities? Our children have this same thinking. Chastity is an unknown virtue. Now, in the Thessalonian culture, all sex acts were natural. It's a body function, just like eating. It's like going to the bathroom. You've got to do it, and that's all that matters. Now, in our text, here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul didn't get in to all these different sexual perversions. He didn't say it, but this is what he had on his mind. This is what's in the background of this passage. See, Paul wrote this from Corinth, and he was only about 300 miles along Roman roads away from Thessalonica, and the Corinthian culture was the same as that of the Thessalonians. And in Corinth, we read in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul faced many different deviant forms of sex. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 6, I read from this just a moment ago, and this chapter is a, is a working background for the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now in the ninth verse of this sixth chapter he wrote, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Now in one verse, Paul used four of seven Greek words that describe deviant sexual practices. He said fornication. That in this verse refers to the male prostitutes. He said adulterers. And that's somebody who's married and has sex with someone other than their spouse. He said effeminate. Those are the cross-dressers. Those are the transvestites. The word is malakos in the Greek, and it also means a passive partner in a homosexual relationship. He said abusers of themselves with mankind. That's all one word in the Greek. It's the word arsenikoites, and it means homosexuals. 
And what is it that Paul said about this, this, these, this group? He said, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said they are excluded from God's kingdom. And there'll never be any of that sort of deviance permitted among the people of God. Now, modern churches may accept that and they may celebrate it, but neither are they true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's our job to bring people into the kingdom. It's our job to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who are dying in sin. And this, this verse says, these people will not be in the kingdom. Now, you can argue with me, you can argue with Paul, you can argue with God, but both Old and New Testaments agree on this essential truth that God saves people out of those sins. God does not save them and leave them in sin. And if they persist and they stay in those sins, they've not been transformed, and thus they're not saved. Now, interestingly, to show you where this path has taken us, Ligonier Ministries recently evaluated the theological understanding of Americans. And for the first time in our history, 44% of Americans agree with this statement. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. Now, what's wrong with that? Why is it people believe that? Well, I'd have to say that it's the responsibility uh, of teaching theology. That responsibility lies with the church. But what churches are doing is throwing open their doors to welcome that lifestyle. And they say, you're just fine the way that you are. Just come and stay the way that you are. You don't need to change. And they don't read to them from the Bible the very thing that I read you this morning that says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They must be saved out of those sins. And if churches don't educate them, who will? Certainly not the culture. Forget the public schools. They're not going to teach them. And churches today know it's easier to accept lies than it is to fight for the truth. It's easier to go with the flow than to fight upstream against it. And while they float along with the flow, they travel the broad road to the destruction of the fires of hell. Do you think it wouldn't have been easier for Paul just to accept it? I mean, he's dealing with a society that knows nothing of chastity. They'd never heard of such a thing as sexual, sexual abstinence. They never heard that this was immoral. They had to unlearn what they'd always been taught. Now, at least we still have some that teach against it in America. Still, there are some Christians who haven't bought on, uh, bought, uh, bit on that poisonous tree. Hollywood and homosexuals know there is still a substantial amount of our country that's against promiscuity. And so they strive to be accepted in every place. And that's why you have supreme court battles over things like defining marriage. Liberal deviants don't want judges to say that the Constitution has anything to do with morality. Now, if truth is told, there are enough Christians that we could stop it. If Christians would just stop voting for people that push it, and if our churches would still stand on the Bible, we wouldn't have to deal with this. But as I say this, Paul wasn't on a crusade to change the Roman government. That's not his purpose. Only thing he needed to do was to get Christians to do what they should do. That's all he's talking about here. Why? Because Christ is coming to rule the world. We don't need to worry about what the world does and what the world's governments do. Just get Christians, people who say they are believers in Christ, to do what they're supposed to do. And let me just ask, 
Whose side will we be on when Christ returns? Isn't that the very theme of the letter? Whose side are we on? How will we live in the light of Christ's return? Are we cultural homeboys? Or do we live like radical Bible-believing saints? Look at verse 3 in chapter 13. Or verse 13, rather, in chapter 3. It says there that Christ is coming with his saints. His saints are the holy ones. Whose side are they on? And the question is, are you on that same side? And I'll tell you something else. The sexual revolution has other ramifications. Abortion is one of its consequences. Nobody wants to live with the inconvenient results of sex outside of marriage. And so the only solution is to kill the babies that go with it. Disguise it under some nonsensical, non-existent provision in the Constitution that says that a woman has a right to choose. But the right to choose to abort is not constitutional law. That's made-up law. Christians don't even really need to argue this on moral grounds. The Constitution isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily provide for moral arguments. All we really need to do is just argue what's there. Argue the laws that we have. Abortion is made-up law. There's not a sentence in the Constitution anywhere that suggests people can abort babies. Oh, the murder of babies is the complete degradation of humanity. When murder is the law of the land, then we've dug a hole that's too deep to climb out of. Paul wouldn't compromise on these issues. Oh yes, it would be so much easier not to fight upstream against the Roman society. People that have never heard of chastity as Christians do today. So much easier, but the difficulty of it didn't matter. Paul would not give up this fight. And he told the Thessalonians, you won't grow if you stay in the culture. You're never going to accomplish sanctification. Your faith will never increase. Your love can't be the kind of love it should be. The hope of Christ's return with his saints will never be right if you're on the wrong side of this fight. Well, today's message is background info. We need some insight into the cultural deviance of that time. And we're learning that we don't look very much different from them. But then there's another piece that I need to add. You see, this just, just isn't about the secular culture. Sexual deviance was also their religion. If you go back to 1 Corinthians again, in the ninth verse of the 6th chapter, we skipped the word idolaters. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why do you suppose that idolatry shows up in a list of four of the worst sexual sins of that culture. Why is there fornication and there is adultery and there's, it talks about transvestites and it speaks of homosexuals? Why does it talk about idolatry there? Well, it's because their temples and their worship had this component. Their idols and all of that had this component that temple prostitution was to have an encounter with the gods. And so the temples had male and female prostitutes. You take your pick, you just hook up your body with them, and sex with them was to experience the ecstasy of an encounter with the gods. And their gods they worship were perverts too. Their mythology was filled with the sexual escapades of their gods. So a sexual encounter wasn't just a physical thing, and it wasn't just biology, this is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual matter. They said, you're better spiritually. If you give your body to this perversion. And doesn't that sound a lot like churches today? 
If you're tolerant of perverted lifestyles, then you're said to be a better Christian. If you stand against it, you can't be a Christian. Their definition of Christianity is tolerance. And no wonder we're in such trouble. So there in 1 Corinthians, he goes on to discuss this. Look at verses 15 through 20. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What, know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He said, you can't be joined to them. You can't be joined to a harlot, to a prostitute. You can't go to the prostitutes at the temple because you can't imagine that Christ would do that. You are joined to Christ. You don't own your body. It's not your right to do anything that you want with your body. You belong to Christ. You were bought with a price, the price of his precious blood. And it's not your right to do what you please unless what you please pleases God. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said you must walk, you must live to please God. So you need to stop arguing about what you can do. You need to argue about what you must do. You must please God. You see, deviant lifestyles, when they are the societal norm, that's a downward trek. They destroy human dignity. This freedom that they call it elevates no one. It's not liberty. It's slavery. It's the dominion of sin. It's the kingdom of Satan and not God. Demosthenes, a Greek statesman and orator from 300 B.C., wrote... We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the guardianship of our homes. What does that sound like? Sounds like the degradation of women, doesn't it? No matter how you look at it, sexual deviance degrades women into sex toys. In a sexually free society, women aren't free. They're pushed down. They're taken advantage of. Isn't that what the sexual revolution has done to women? Why is there a hashtag Me Too movement? Why is that needed if it's needed? It's because it's the unintended consequence of sexual liberation. The century-long gains of Christianity to elevate women have come crashing down towards this backwards type of living that you saw in the first century. You take away the God-given sanctity of marriage and the joy of sex is destroyed. In its place are lustful desires that are never satiated. And thus, as I said at the beginning, the deviance goes deeper and deeper, attempting to satisfy what can never be satisfied. Let me tell you something else. What was Roman sexuality about? It was about male dominance. The strong were those who took what they wanted. The Roman male could have relations with anyone he wanted, male or female. It was okay as long as he was the aggressor. Let me read further to you. A real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters even while married. He would engage in pederasty, 
In case you didn't know what that means, that means sex with young boys. Even rape was generally acceptable as long as he only raped people of lower status. The Romans never talked about sexual orientation. They never heard of sexual orientation. A respected man was one who could force his dominance on anyone, man, woman, or child. And what we're talking about here is the law. This, this, this is society. This is the way things are done. And each perversion forced women lower on the scale. And the sexual revolution has done that. Every day there are new claims of sexual harassment. And, and women try to correct it in the wrong way. Many of them reverse the advantage to, uh, to make it a tool to get what they want. And I know it's not PC for me to say that, but don't we know that this topic is so hot that all that someone needs to do is make the claim and they can destroy anybody they want? If that claim is made, it must be believed. You see, the fact that, that, it, that they can and the fact that they need to and that it's a thing that needs to be checked out, it's all because sex is not considered a God-given gift for the marriage of a man and a woman. Every letter and the LBGTQ movement destroys women and good order of society. Where is the woman held in higher esteem than in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where? Who is it that said, in Christ there is neither male nor female? Who elevated women and denied that men had the right to take advantage of them? It was the church, and it was the Apostle Paul. But Paul is rejected. That blissful relationship that you find in the Song of Solomon where marriage is emblematic of the Lord's church, that is rejected love. And so we have to ask, will this deviance go deeper? Will there be another letter added to LBGTQ? There will. Now there's a push to recognize old Roman pederasty. Sex with children is next on the agenda. A notable sociologist recently wrote that sex with children is beneficial. Will it be accepted? No doubt it will. Don't you remember that at one time all the letters in that movement were shameful? Can you believe that 50 years ago, if we're talking pre-World War II, which is a little bit longer than that, but could, could you believe that all of those letters were shameful, but now they're celebrated? Just watch and see. Keep your children close because they're the next letter in that debased movement. Now this is what Paul faced when he wrote 1 Thessalonians 4. What the Bible says is unacceptable, reprehensible, perverted behavior was common with them. They had no sense of chastity. They needed to be re-educated. They needed to be taught that those activities come from a reprobate mind, not the redeemed mind. So Paul came to them with a new code of conduct. He came to them with purity and holiness. Why? Because that's God's plan. God's plan is for your sanctification. Christ is coming with his saints. And what will he find in the church when he comes? Well, today the church is headed into the lunacy and the insanity of sexual perversion. It destroys homes. It tears apart the family. It obliterates the gospel. I mean, who can believe today that when a baby is born, they say, well, you can't be sure what it is. You can't tell by looking at it. You can't tell if it's a boy or a girl. And that's what you get when you fall in love with deviant lifestyles. Do you think this sin is not a cancer? It is. It destroys brain cells. Your children are taught this nonsense every day.
Today, folks, what we're raising is a Corinthian and Thessalonian generation. They've never heard of the Christian moral ethic. Bringing them out of this culture into the Christian culture is like waking up on Mars. Well, that gives you some of the background of this passage. It sets the tone for how Paul will deal with this problem. There's a way for Christians to walk in this world. It's not to hook up with the culture. It's not to do what they do. It's to please God by obedience. It's to go His way because His way is right. And because He has the right to demand it. Now it's interesting in this passage that the first movement towards a right walk with God is to deal with sexual impurity. Have you noticed that? The very first thing that he talks about in walking right with God is to deal with the issue of sexual impurity. You can't walk with God unless you understand human sexuality and God's intention for the sexes. And it's interesting because this is so current. In America, pre-World War II, this problem wouldn't look like it does today. Now, all the sins were there from the very beginning. We know that. Read the Old Testament. All these things were there. These sins have always been in the world. But the difference is, in America, they were never out in the open and in the mainstream until our generation. Sexual perversion affects every area of Christian service. It'll stop your progress dead in its tracks. If you don't deal with it, it'll ruin you. It ruins your relationship with God and with each other. And aren't those the only two things that matter? According to Jesus Christ, it's the way that you love God and the way that you love each other. And you can't mess over those two things because those are God's two greatest commandments. Paul prayed love would abound. We find that in chapter 3, he continues in chapter 4. And this leads me to believe that there is a close connection between our love for God and our love for each other according to the moral values dealing with the issue of sex. Illicit sex destroys lives. There is no good, there is no help that comes from it, and if it isn't good, it didn't come from God, because God is good, and God is love. God help us that we'll be holy when He comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You now confessing our sin. We know even as I talk about these things that that each of us is immersed in this culture and we've given into it. At times we do. We have to admit that. Every person in this room at times has given into it. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to guard our lives, help us to guard what we see, to be very careful about the very things that Paul talks about in this passage. We can't be holy. We can't be unblameable. We won't be ready when Christ comes unless our hearts are pure, unless we... Hold on here in the truth of your word and obey your commandments. And Lord, as we talk about these things today, there, we certainly don't, do not mean to have any, any hatred in our voice for, for anyone who, who is a sinner because we are all sinners. And Lord, we want to see people saved. And we want people to be called out of immoral lifestyles just like we would call a murderer to stop murdering or a thief to stop stealing. Or a rapist to stop raping. So we call on these people who are living in these deviant sexual forms, uh, these, these practices that they're in to come out of that. Because your word says they must, they must. Save people don't live that way. And Lord, help us not to be a church that's tolerant to bring that into the church and say it's okay, but to preach against it. May we love the sinners who commit them uh, these sins. And may we give them the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring them out of those sins. 
and not to leave people as they are. Help us to stand on that, even though we know it will be difficult. It will be much harder than it is now. The future is showing us that, what we've seen in the past, the future is showing us that this is going to be a very, very difficult fight for us. Lord, I pray the Berean Baptist Church would stand on the truth of God's Word. Just let us go to the Word and stand there. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.